faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The incident of Shipton is now the man of steel. Superman! Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 70, where my ADD gets the better of me. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and what I'm doing is, after the month-long coverage of Birthright, uh, I'm going to have a bit of a breather episode, a one-off. I loved going through Birthright, loved all of that, loved that story, a lot of good positive feedback, but at the same time, those multi-part episodes begin to feel like a chore, especially four-part episodes. Uh, and that may, you know, in the future, it may change the way I cover some things. Uh, I mean, even when I like the material, going on week after week gets to my attention deficit disorder a little bit too much. Part of the excitement of changing the format to the more open version was that every week, new stuff. I'm looking at something different. But I, I do hope you enjoyed the coverage. I liked hearing your feedback, so I appreciate that. In that vein, you know, kind of looking at the way I'm covering things, I shifted a few things around the schedule. And when I did that, it left a little bit of a gap in the schedule. So I needed something to cover, and luckily, I didn't have to look far, because I've been on this solid Shazam kick for a while now, thanks to the excellent Fire and Water podcast, because Robert J. Kelly played the Power Records adventure. Not that it takes much to get me in a Captain Marvel mood, he's one of my favorite characters. And as if, by providence, the heavens opened up, and I picked up the Superman vs. Shazam trade. I know what you're thinking, didn't you cover the, the Treasury Edition? Yeah, but the trade has some material I had not even read yet. So I'm going to do a follow-up to the Superman vs. Shazam episode, which was episode 44, for those of you keeping track. You have an index out there. I'm going to cover the follow-up tale. Now for those of you who have forgotten episode 44 or didn't listen, go back and listen to that. It was a good episode. Or, let me bring you up to speed really quickly so I don't lose listeners. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Captain Marvel, who started out in the Golden Age as a Fawcett Comics character, where he became the biggest selling hero of the 1940s. But, due to a lawsuit from DC alleging that Captain Marvel was too similar to Superman, Fawcett went out of business, and Captain Marvel went away. But in the 70s, DC acquired the rights to publish the characters and brought out a new book called Shazam. Now, it was called Shazam because Marvel Comics had trademarked the name Captain Marvel so DC couldn't use it as a title or in the ads. And so began years of confusion and people making the mistake of calling Captain Marvel by his magic word when only the wizard was named Shazam. I want to make that perfectly clear. The superhero character, Captain Marvel, did not have the name Shazam despite what the New 52 wants to tell you. Because it's a five-year timeline so we have to change the name. Right, Andrew Leyland? He's listening. He knows. He probably just talked to his iPod. It's kind of a we-name-the-dog-Indiana type of thing, and it really does get under my skin. His name is Captain Marvel, which is a great name. And I know Carol Danvers is Captain Marvel, and there was Marvel. I know that. There's no reason these characters can't share it, mainly because the Marvel Captain Marvel was based pretty heavily on the Fawcett Captain Marvel. It's an homage, kids. Rick Jones hits the bands together, and out comes Captain Marvel. Read between the lines, because the lines are huge. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Marvel family, or Shazam family, as it says on the book, it's the Marvel family, people. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, what I'm going to do is let the, <laughs> the theme from the 1970s filmation cartoon do the heavy lifting. This is Billy Batson, star reporter for station WIZZ-TV. 
He has been picked by the aged wizard, Shazam, to carry on the wizard's lifelong crusade against crime and the forces of evil. When Billy speaks the wizard's name, Shazam! Billy becomes Captain Marvel, mighty champion, combining the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the power of Zeus, the courage of Achilles, and the speed of Mercury. Billy's twin sister, Mary Batson, has also been granted special power. When she speaks the name... Shazam! Mary Batson becomes Mary Marvel, blending the grace of Selena with the best qualities of other goddesses, whose names combined form the word Shazam! The third member of the Mighty Trio is their friend, lame newsboy, Freddie Freeman, when he speaks the name of his idol, Captain Marvel! Freddie becomes the powerful Captain Marvel Jr. Together, they are the Mighty Marvel, dedicated to fighting the forces of evil throughout the universe. And that is the basic setup. DC kept the Marvel family on their own version of Earth, so they're separate, they're doing their own thing over here, thanks to the multiverse. Hail the multiverse. But eventually, the good Captain made his way to our Earth, where a villain named Carmang tricked Captain Marvel and Superman into fighting each other. But good prevailed, and the two heroes went back to their own respective adventures on their parallel Earths. And that was the adventure we covered in episode 44, and where we pick up this time with DC Comics Presents issues 33 and 34, which were the May and June 1981 issues, respectively. And just to make sure, for you youngsters who don't remember, on top of a Superman-Batman team-up book, World's Finest, both the Caped Crusader and the Man of Steel had their own respective team-up books. Batman had Brave and the Bold, in which he would team up with another DC character, and Superman had DC Comics Presents with the same premise. Apparently, Superman's battle with Captain Marvel in the Treasury Edition got some nice sales, but apparently not record-breaking because it took years to re-team these two. But when they decided to team them up, DC decided to call in most of the same creative team, and this story features more Superman and Captain Marvel team-up action with an excellent, unexpected guest star. Well, several of them, but one of them is a real doozy. And of course, after that, we'll have another episode of Superman the Animated Series, as per usual. But first, we have a pair of emails. First one is from our good friend Jose Antonio Rivera. And he sent us an email entitled, What Superman Means to Me. And actually, after reading this, I'm going to offer it with very little comment, because I want that to be Jose's thoughts. And Jose writes, What follows is an amended version of the email I sent to Scott, that being Scott Gardner, that's Dave editorializing here, uh, email that I sent to Scott on his I Have a Few Things to Say About Superman podcast. I feel this perfectly sums up what the Man of Steel means to me, and I'd love for you to read it and share your thoughts. When I think of the word superhero... The first image in my head is of Superman. Always has been, always will be. This, to me, is the definitive hero. Sure, he was the first superhero, but he was my first superhero. As a kid, I was exposed to the character thanks to the Super Friends, Galactic Guardians cartoon, or as I called it as a kid, the Superpower Show, and through action figures. My aunt was a comic collector and had the Superman from the 30s to the 70s hardcover, which I loved. I had the Superman 3 poster when I was very little, and black and white photo of George Reeves. Of course, the movies ran on TV, and I used to watch the Superboy series every Saturday, and when you're a little boy, you look at Superman as this great hero you want to be like. You want to be strong, you want to fly, 
you put a red towel around your neck, you, you put on that t-shirt with the S-shield, and you talk in a deep voice as you put your hands on your hips. We all do it. I like how you use the present tense, Jose. Growing up as a teenager, I had nerdish tendencies. I had glasses and used to slick my hair back. Let's face it, I didn't have much self-esteem back then, and would often retreat to, into comics when things got low. I would sometimes identify with Clark Kent because I wanted to write, and often people wouldn't take a second to look at me. And yes, when I would wear the button-down shirt, I'd occasionally wear my Superman shirt underneath, go to the bathroom, pull off my glasses, do the shirt rip in front of the mirror. We all do it. Once again, present tense. Once again, I couldn't agree more. Now that I'm an adult, I see Superman in a different light. I see him as the ultimate example of a nice guy finishing first. I see him as an ideal. As Clark, he works hard, has a lot of friends, is in a relationship, and is often commended for the work he puts in. As Superman, he helps out anyone in need. While he can't save everyone, he tries to save as many as he can. I believe it was an episode of Lois and Clark where Dean Cain said it best. Superman is what I can do, but Clark Kent is who I am. And that stuck with me for years because he knew the difference between the two. He was self-assured, and although life was tough, he got through it. Often I'd imagine what it would be like to be a good man with that level of success, but keep a level head. We all do it. Superman will always be my favorite superhero because no matter what stage I'm at in my life, he always has something new to teach me. And while he may not be as popular with people as he once was, I know everything is cyclical. There will be a time when the public will get tired of the dark and brooding, and when that time comes, all they'll have to do is look up in the sky, because waiting there for everyone is a hero, ready to do what's needed and inspire people. Until that day comes, I'm content to sit down, read my comics, wear my shirts, watch my movies, TV, and imagine what it would be like to put on the costume and fly. Hey, we all do it. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. P.S. David, I'm okay with the move to Tuesdays because I often listen to the show on my way to work, on my break from work, or at the gym, so as long as I have it during the week, a wait won't kill me. But I was wondering if you could talk more about the Man of Steel Legos out there. And you kind of summed up a lot of my, my feelings and emotions towards that. So as I said, I'm not going to have a lot of commentary. I will add this, and I don't think I've ever said this on the air. There's a part of me, even at 35-ish, hasn't given up on the idea that, you know, one day I could just take a flying leap and start flying. And, and I think he shows me possibilities. Because as I said, you know, I have not ruled out the idea that one day I'm going to go out in my backyard, bend down, leap up, and keep going. I know that's unrealistic. In the back of my head, I know this. I'm a 35-year-old man. I'm not going to suddenly start flying one day. However, I'm not willing to just put that idea in a drawer and just say never, ever, ever, ever. Because I think if we start completely dismissing the improbable or the darn near impossible, we're not going to accomplish much, you know? As a kid, I would never have thought that I would have this sort of radio show or meet the friends I do internationally who share my fandom. So, I mean, that's one impossibility right there is just this very show that I can sit down every week, talk about Superman. There are people that listen, that respond, and who feel the same way I do. So I think, for me, he shows me that the impossible, not entirely impossible. It's out there in some form or another, even if it's fiction. And I know I'm getting a little Grant Morrison-y there, but hey, it is what it is. And as far as the Legos, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was something that I vaguely mentioned last episode when I was getting my stuff just because of the time crunch I was on. There are three Lego sets that I ran into. You have the big Mamma Jamma, Superman's Battle, for, uh, Superman's Battle of Smallville, not for Smallville. Um, has this big Black Zero ship, 
several Kryptonians, Zod, Superman, minifigures, Colonel Hardy, for those of you that always wanted a Chris Maloney figure. Um, beautiful, beautiful thing. But that's running about 60 to $70. I would actually suggest the Escape from Black Zero. If you just want, you know, a good economical one, Escape from Black Zero includes a small escape pod, a Lois Lane minifigure, Superman minifigure, and a Zod minifigure. You've got your core cast right there. And these minifigures are actually really, really impressive. Um, I mean, the Superman is the standard Superman you got with the Le Lex Luthor Lego thing, uh, just with a new costume. Same head sculpt and everything. Uh, the Zod looks great, except for the hair. The John Travolta hair needs to go. But he also has this power armor you can put on him. And the Lois Lane is great. You can actually switch the heads around. And you can have the angry heat vision Superman and Zod. You can also have a happy Lois Lane and a terrified Lois Lane. So they're actually really well made. I just kind of miss the times when you could just get random Lego blocks and let your imagination do the walking. The third one, uh, the, there's two smaller ones, the Escape from Black Zero and the Metropolis Showdown, which includes Superman, Zod, and then this sort of Jeep thing and a radio tower. I like that one for the core, but I think for the exact same price, you can get Escape from Black Zero, have the same two figures, and a lowest lane. For my money, that's where I, that's the one that I got. Uh, they're excellent, excellent stuff, but I still miss being able to build what I want. Like building my own Enterprise, because I have pieces that look like it. But Jose, I really do like your heartfelt letter. I think uh, our next email is from my co-host over at Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk Podcast. Mr. Lee Busby, who writes episodes 66 through 69, or I Spent the Night or Day with J. David Weeder. Lee, can you read my mind? Um, Lee writes, Hi David, long-time listener, first-time writer. Which I can't help but crack up at. I was super excited when I heard you announce you were going to be covering Birthright. I love this series, but it's been a few years since I've read it, so I took this as an opportunity to revisit Mark Wade's Man of Steel origin story. I held off on listening to your podcast until all four parts of the Birthright story were uploaded and I had finished rereading my trade paperback. And then I took you to work with me. I listened to all four episodes back to back to back to back. Is that enough backs? I think so. I've done the math. And I must say your coverage was phenomenal. You helped to point out small details that I had glossed over in previous readings and made sense of the few places where I struggled. It has also occurred to me, as I'm sure with most Superman fans by now, who have seen the new Man of Steel trailers multiple times, that a lot of story beats and even dialogue seems to be lifted directly from Birthright, and it makes me happy. You can't see it, but I'm smiling with all my might at the moment. Lee, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. This is my top Mark Wade story, although he's doing one hell of a good job on Indestructible Hulk right now. He is indeed. Anyways, keep fighting the good fight, your friend Lee Busby. P.S. While you were going through your list of things that Superman has survived through the last 75 years, you forget to mention that he made it through Joe Besser becoming one of the Three Stooges. That's an awful trying time for a lot of people, I'm sure. I know there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth at that point, Lee. I uh, appreciate you pointing that out, Lee. Um, you know, my goal with that was, and, and maybe the reason that I scrapped the original recording of Episode 1 was to... Well, I kind of summed it up at the end. You know, Birthright is a good primer. For a lapsed Superman fan or someone who's on the cusp wanting to get into it, it's a good thing to put down on the table and give them, you know... This is what it's about, because it says a lot about the character. It also opens doors to previous incarnations. And I wanted to present it as clearly as I could, um, try to communicate, you know, to the best of my ability, the, the nuts and bolts and the cogs of the story that make it that. So I appreciate that, you know, that feedback, 
shows that I hopefully did what I set out to do. It was just, it took me four episodes to do it. Um, so I appreciate that. And Lee, as I mentioned, is on Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk podcast with me. And I, after I got this email, I texted because, uh, and I told Lee, hey, this took you this long to write in? Because Lee has been a longtime listener who lived here locally in the exact same town as me. And we met through Superman Forever Radio, and then eventually I brought Lee on to Pad Smash, and I thought, wow, all this time, and this is the first time he's written in? So, interesting. Lee has since moved to another town, which makes me very, very sad. I miss he and his wife here. They were a great couple to hang out with. So, Lee, I appreciate your email, but I know we're running long, so I am going to segue, conveniently, to a promo. After the promo, we're going to jump into this batch of awesomeness that is another Superman Shazam round, and then I will be back in just a moment. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com Every legend has a beginning. And we have returned to look at our first issue of the episode, DC Comics Presents number 33, the May 1981 issue, and you could have found this piece of magic on the spinner rack on February 2nd, 1981, which the story is entitled Man and Super Marvel, which is a bit of a play on George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman, but a bit more wacky. I know you like the wacky. The creative team on both books remains the same, uh, save one change, so I'm going to put them here and just do a quick reminder on the next one. Jerry Conway plotted the first issue with Roy Thomas scripting. Uh, the only difference is Conway did not script the next issue. He did not script 34. It was all Roy Thomas. Which is odd since Jerry Conway wrote the Treasury edition, but Roy Thomas is definitely a worthy successor. On both issues, pencils were done by Rich Buckler with inks by Dick Giordano or some approximation thereof by way of his studio. Colors came courtesy of Gene D'Angelo and letters were provided by John Costanza. The cover, also by Buckler and Giordano, shows our two heroes meeting in the air over shocked onlookers who are trying to figure out what they are seeing. Here's why they're shocked. Flying in from the upper left-hand corner of the cover is the familiar face and spit curl of Superman, but he's dressed in the familiar red costume of Captain Marvel. Superman calls out, what's the idea of switching costumes with me? From the lower right is the Fred McMurray face of Captain Marvel, wearing the Man of Steel's duds and saying, I've gained all your powers too, Superman. While I wear this outfit, I'm you and you're me. It's a really good cover because it grabs your attention with its concept. And I love Buckler's work here because both heroes are recognizable. And in this era, Captain Marvel was moving away from the CC Beck cartoon style and kind of becoming a more standard a chiseled superhero. And Buckler's Superman looks very masculine, almost like a drawing from Jose Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And the story begins with Jimmy Olsen and Clark Kent at the Daily Planet, 
where Clark catches Jimmy reading the comic exploits of Captain Marvel. Clark tells Jimmy that Perry wouldn't appreciate him reading comic books on company time, but it turns out that Perry actually gave Jimmy the book. While Captain Marvel is a comic book hero, he also exists somewhere on an alternate Earth, and after this throwdown with Superman, Perry wants a story comparing the two heroes, so the comic is actually research. As Jimmy talks about how Captain Marvel is his favorite hero, which Clark points out wouldn't thrill his pal Superman, there's a noise that Clark recognizes as two commuter trains about to collide with one another. He knows that sound. Ducking into a storeroom, Clark pops open his dress shirt to reveal a yellow lightning bolt on a red costume? Unsure how he ended up wearing the costume and lacking any real time to figure it out, Superman flies into action but is stunned when his enhanced vision and hearing powers vanish. But his powers of flight, speed, and strength are still present, which allows him to save the trains by ripping up a part of the track and sending one into the air and using his super breath to stop the other. He catches the airbound train and brings it down gently and the day is saved, despite the odd change in his uniform and powers, which confused the train passengers quite a bit. With a moment to breathe, Superman tries to figure out what has occurred with his powers, and wonders if Captain Marvel is having a similar experience on his Earth. So Superman decides to check, and flies off to Earth as, and as a Man of Steel disappears, Mixus Pitalik appears, cackling that his latest prank is working. Mixus Pitalik doesn't hang around long because he wants to get back to work and see if his mysterious, silent partner is having similar results. Meanwhile, Superman flies through the interdimensional Rock of Eternity and makes his way to New York on Earth-S. As he is making his way around the slightly unfamiliar city, he spots a group of thieves racing away from the police on a boat. But before the Man of Steel can fly into action like a red bolt, something whips right by him at super speed. That something is Captain Marvel himself, and he's wearing Superman's costume. The Big Red Cheese keeps to his usual tricks, plucking the boat out of the water and dumping the criminals out. After delivering his catch to the police, Captain Marvel flies back into the air to meet with Superman. Superman asks Captain Marvel what is going on with the costume switch, and Cap has no idea he was hoping that Superman would know. The two land on a nearby rooftop, and Cap explains that he just said his magic word, SHAZAM! And when the lightning bolt hit Billy Batson, Cap appeared in the costume and possessing some of Superman's powers. The two heroes decide to simply switch costumes, but first, Captain Marvel asks Superman to say the magic word, Shazam. When Superman does so, a lightning bolt crashes down, changing him into Clark Kent, but it also knocks the powerless Kent off of the rooftop. Super Cap catches Clark before he hits the ground, and Clark quickly says Shazam and becomes Captain Man or Marvel Super, uh, or whatever clever nickname you want to give him. I don't think Marvel Man would go over too well. That's a copyright infringement. But Captain Marvel suggests that the two head back to his landlady's house to have some of her crepes. But as they are walking away, a monstrous set of gigantic tentacles oozes out of a nearby trash can and snares the heroes. The two struggle against the monster with Captain Marvel testing out heat vision and getting batted away into a grocery store for his effort. An enraged Superman delivers a beatdown to the tentacles, and Cap flies back in and finishes it off with a super clap, ending the danger. And as the heroes are celebrating their victory, Mixus Pitalik pops up again, literally, to reveal that he is behind the switch. Which isn't a shocker, but what is? Mixie has trapped Superman on Earth-S, using magic. And the Man of Steel cannot return to his world, even by way of the Rock of Eternity. And just before he vanishes, Mixie reveals that there is more wackiness to come, and this is only the beginning. And with that, Captain Marvel and Superman take off to the home of Billy Batson and dine on some delicious crepes while discussing their predicament. They declare that they will solve the problem together, but unknown to them, they are being spied on 
via an electronic device. Deep underground, Mixuspidlick laughs at the heroes, along with his silent partner, revealed on the last panel of the issue to be the villainous worm Mr. Mind. And we get a big fat to-be-continued on this 17-page story. And that brings us to the page-by-page notes for the issue, which I've done in a bit of a round-robin style, though you can't really have a round-robin with one person. Well, you, you can, but it's really, really awkward. Anyway, the notes. It's hard for me not to smile when two of my favorite characters team up, and I've never been able to figure out if I like them because they are similar or because of their differences. I've never felt that they were a carbon copy of one another, but with them switching costumes, I wonder if it is a nod to the lawsuits between Fawcett and DC alleging that Superman and Captain Marvel were too similar. Uh, The best part of this trade paperback, by the way, is it keeps the original page numbers to make the notes easier. So thank you DC Comics for retaining that. On page one, in the credits, there is an apology to G.B. Shaw's and George Bernard Shaw, and I guess for making light of his book or the title Man and Superman, and you know many people try and credit the name Superman to George Bernard Shaw. Not accurate. The name actually came from Frederick Nietzsche. So, nihilism did bring us Superman. Wow, I should comment on the irony of that someday, but not today. Random facts, kids. Also on page one, there's a cool Metro charity poster showing Superman getting struck by lightning, and the irony almost passed me by. You know, Captain Marvel calling down lightning and all. Also, the cover of Jimmy's comic has Captain Marvel fighting King Cole. I don't mean the Robert E. Howard creation who was Conan's father. This King Cole is a barbaric strongman villain of Captain Marvel in the Golden Age, and this proves that Fawcett comics exist in the DC Universe, and I assume they're still in publication. Interesting. On page two, it dawned on me. Metropolis has the worst public transit system in the world. Buses flip, trains crash, taxicabs drive right in the middle of superhero battles. How is this city not relegated to third world country status? Because wouldn't the government disown the place after so many disaster funds? I mean, at some point you're just dragging the country down. I mean, the entire city, every business, bankrupt. You couldn't even buy an apartment because no insurance company would cover the place. The best part of page two, though, is Jimmy whining when Clark takes off. Because he mainly asks, why does everybody ignore me? And then he doesn't appear again until the end of the crossover. Next issue. Irony is kind of ironic sometimes. Keep your chin up, Jimmy. Um, We get a solid, this looks like a job for Superman on page three, which happens right before Superman gets a big wrench in his gears. A lightning bolt where his S should be. But I have a complaint because Superman calls Cap's cape a puny little cape. And dude, I'm sorry, but Captain Marvel's cape, his uniform, it was based on Prussian military uniforms from the Napoleonic War. It's designed for cavalry and horseback riding. So I, I don't think it's a puny cape, it's, it's fitting, it's its design. But Superman's look of shock is kind of magical in itself. Pun intended. Jumping to page four... Oh good, severe property damage to the tracks, plus there has to be luggage flying around on both trains. Between this and page 5, I realize why I failed high school physics, thanks to rescues like this one. A train car doesn't buckle as Superman lifts it in the air, and somehow all of the train cars magically follow back on the track. Wouldn't happen in the real world. But we believe in the impossible, right? Staying on page 5, a poor, confused tourist is sure this is Superman, but then he realizes, well, I've been watching The Man of Steel on a black and white television. 
That can make a big difference. Now take that from somebody who played Nintendo games on a black and white TV as a kid. Revisiting these games in color when I was much, much older was a pretty life-changing experience. And you know, I think Carly Rae Jepsen has ruined me in a way. She's ruined me and comics in the foreseeable future. Because Superman says, this is crazy, and suddenly I hear that song. Hey, Captain Marvel, call me maybe. Thanks, Canadian dance pop sensation. Thanks a lot. Uh, still on page five, with that, as that song plays through my head, I have to say that I really, really like the depiction of the reflective surface of the building that Superman is sitting on, pondering his predicament. It's very... Bling bling! It's an interesting note, the Art Deco style of the building would actually be used a bit by Jerry Ordway during his Power of Shazam run. And by doing that, it gave Fawcett City sort of a unique identity. So I'm always a big fan of architecture in comics, especially when it is so defining. And finally, moving to page 6 after page 5's epic notes, the flashback to the Treasury Edition is quick, it's concise, it doesn't drag the story down. That's how you do a flashback. Here's what happened, now we're moving on. And my excitement level rose exponentially when Mixus Pidlick showed up and wearing his space zoot suit instead of the purple dress suit. I like the new 52 version of Mixus Pidlick, but I do miss when he was more fun. And there's something about a mirthful imp that sparks up a story quite a bit. Jumping to page 7, all Superman has to do is make two fast loops around the Rock of Eternity to get to Earth-S. What is this, The Legend of Zelda? Is Superman going to do this, push a tombstone over, and get an awesome sword? Uh, that, that doesn't make any sense. But you know, you know, the Rock of Eternity works because it's magic. It's magic, and with magic, traveling between alternate Earths is as easy as going through the corner store for plutonium. Now, I'm not a fan of magic. I don't hate it, but... I think my big problem is it's the ultimate excuse for getting out of any situation, and I know what you're thinking right now, and you're right, you're right. Dave, how can you like Captain Marvel so much when he is a magic-based character? How can you give him a free pass? Here's how. The thing is, Captain Marvel, in his stories, we are never hit over the head with the magic. It's not sword and sorcery, it's not Doctor Strange. It's a straightforward superhero story. The magic came in and out a bit haphazardly, usually really in the background. Um, and it played more mythologically than, mag than, than sorcery. So most of Captain Marvel's problems were solved with his wits and his fists. So he's straightforward superhero. The, the magic is just a small component. And once again, coming back to the story, the Earth-S portion of the story takes place in New York City rather than Fawcett City. Why? I'm honestly not sure, because I missed a lot of the later Captain Marvel stories from the Bronze Age when the Marvel family was relegated to backups in World's Finest. I know that they changed to match up a bit with the live-action television show with Billy and Uncle Dudley traveling in a Winnebago, and then they went down a bit of a darker path, but I didn't know the stories had changed locale. And on page 9, Captain Marvel dumps the boat out and catches the crooks in the air and these must be the smartest comic book criminals ever. Because they don't attempt to shoot Captain Marvel, that's a waste of bullets. And when Cap dumps them at the feet of the police, one of them actually complies with the cop's order to not move. Because he doesn't want to contend with Captain Marvel. That is refreshing. And let's be honest, this scene reeks of the bad vibration scene from Superman 2. Not a bad thing at all. Not bad. <laughs> 
And one of the criminals is wearing the familiar green jacket of Plastic Man sidekick Woozy Winks. Man, Plastic Man would have just made this an awesome story. Like, kicked it up about 12 notches. I love Plastic Man. And a bit of a nitpicky note on this page, Superman's symbol on the back of the cape is miscolored with red and yellow rather than his simple yellow with black framework. But I don't know if that was in the original printing. Once again, I'm pulling this out of the trade paperback. And thank goodness for the wisdom of Solomon, as Captain Marvel is able to use it to note that he needs to show up in court to ensure a successful prosecution. Thank you, Captain Marvel. Thank you, Wisdom of Solomon. Little nice touch of real realism. Jumping to page 10, while I could distinguish Superman and Captain Marvel on the cover, the interior art doesn't make such a clear distinction. Let's be honest, both are dark-haired, muscular men. The haircut is really the only way to notice the switch in the book. And you actually have to look close, because Buckler is actually using similar facial structures. And I have to point out the mistake on panel 2 when Captain Marvel says that he is using the speed of Mercury to fly. Ah! If Captain Marvel has Superman's powers, he doesn't have the speed of Mercury. Which may be the nerdiest thing I've ever said, ever. Probably not. I, I can be pretty nerdy at times. Anyway, but this may be nerdier, to be honest. Um, I want to start some research on Captain Marvel's collar. Because it began as sort of a decorative shorter cape in that Prussian style I mentioned. Somehow, somewhere, it became a Stylin' 70s popped collar. I just want to know when it went from Prussian Army to the Bee Gees and how. That's a pretty big leap. Uh, moving to page 11, the first panel confuses me because Captain Marvel is reacting with a Hey, what? And Superman is stating that he is making sure Cap is wearing his duds. The image, though has Cap being the one tugging on Superman's fabric, and Superman is sort of gently feeling the cape. So it makes it look like Cap is the, the more aggressive one, while Superman is giving a bit of a, a pushback, but the dialogue is switched around. And you know, at that note, this issue had to be really hard on the, on the artist, on Buckler. Just keeping the heroes straight while they're in one another's costumes. It's rough on the reader at points, so I can only imagine looking at the script and like, I'm drawing Superman, but he's wearing this costume. Crap. That may be why they're sometimes a little more similar. It's much easier to tell them apart when Superman is Clark, and when Captain Marvel has him say the magic word, the irony from page one comes full circle as Superman is actually struck by lightning. And somehow that lightning changes his tie from a solid black color to his more traditional red and black striped look. Magic is weird, kids. And apparently, when you're on an alternate Earth, secret identities don't matter. As we see on page 12, because Superman does the change in front of people. I'm talking about people pointing and watching intently. But, on Earth-S, Billy has blatantly changed to Captain Marvel in front of people all the time, and everyone seems to just forget. Once again, Magic is weird. And the tentacle creature on page 13. It's just, it's a bit odd. And I don't know what the point is. Beyond kind of giving us a pseudo-climax to the issue. And ticking Superman right off. Now I do dig that Superman says Great Krypton and Captain Marvel responds with Holy Moly. Which are two great catchphrases. It'd be funny if they switch those around. But that brings us to page 14. Where apparently the Adventures of Superman TV series existed on Earth-S because the kid in the grocery store recognizes the costume from, quote, the old TV shows. And Superman loses his cool, 
completely. Which leads to page 15's note. If Superman had super hearing for the most, if not all, of his life, he should probably know better than to talk smack when Cap has his powers. Because you see on page 14, Superman says that he may have Cap's mortality, but he's still Superman at heart. But Captain Marvel wins the snark fest. How? He reminds Superman that the Man of Steel just used Captain Marvel's fists to beat down the monster. So Superman's trying to say, well, I may only have these paltry powers of Captain Marvel. Well, well, those do seem to do the job, don't they? Well done, Cap. Well done. Golf clap. But don't count out the Man of Steel, because he uses some solid problem-solving skills to deduce that all of this must be the result of magic. Since kryptonite and magic are the two things that can affect him, but kryptonite wouldn't affect Captain Marvel. I see what you did there. And then, with all of this, we get one of the most awesome endings ever. Our heroes eating crepes. Crepes! Clark Kent and Billy Batson are eating crepes, that's how the story ends. This feels like the comic book version of, tr of Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories, where he would meet, of course, Rick James, and then Prince. I'm hoping next time we get Jim, son of Saturn, playing racquetball with Blue Devil. Actually, I would buy that in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Uh, but right now, we're in the middle of a fun story. I need a quick break before we jump to the next segment. So enjoy another podcast promo, and I'll be back in just one moment. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honors of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. And we are back for round two. DC Comics Presents issue 34, which was the June 1981 edition, released on March 5th of 1981. The story is entitled The Beast Man Who Shouted Hate at the Heart of the UN by the same creative team as issue 33 minus Jerry Conway on the plot. All of this I have mentioned to you previously. The cover is a striking image and puts a new player on the board. Cast against a uh, sort of burnt orange background with the UN symbol on the wall is the massive hulking body of King Cole, again not Conan's dad, but an angry beast man in his own right. Speaking of right, Superman hangs helplessly by his cape in Cole's right hand, with Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. in his left. Captain Marvel himself is collapsed, defeated at Cole's feet, as the villain shouts, I, King Cole, have beaten Superman in the world's mightiest family. No one remains to challenge me. But a shadow's cast on the ground, standing in a heroic pose, and boldly calls out, No one but me. 
As I said, it's a solid cover with the Marvel family, and I refuse to call them the Shazam family, even though it says so on the cover, but it looks very much like they're quote-unquote darker versions from the time period. Um, what I mean is the tone of the story shifted from this fun cartoon style uh, in the last two issues of the Shazam ongoing, and then the characters were relegated during this time to backups in the world's finest with this slightly darker tone. But bear in mind, when I say darker, we're not talking a tonal shift that would be the equivalent of like Adam West Batman going to Frank Miller Dark Knight. But it's more the Marvel family, with the exception of Captain Marvel Jr., were almost on par with Archie. And the tone that they went to was more common for the comics at the time. Now, you can say what you want about that lighter tone that I mentioned, the cartoony tone, but, you know, they had a clear market. They were aimed at younger kids, and however, you know, the charm of those old Fawcett stories have won over many jaded adults, so... There you go. Anyway, they're darker incarnations. That's what I was talking about before I got sidetracked. Let's pick up the story with Superman and Captain Marvel flying through the skies of New York, back in their proper costumes. And they test out their powers as crowds marvel at Cap and wonder who Mr. Anonymous is. Superman accidentally uses his x-ray vision to see a woman stepping out of the shower and decides that he is satisfied that his powers have returned. He's good. We get a little flashback from last issue where Cap tells his side of the story, becoming Cap in Superman's clothes when he said the magic word, and then he ran into Superman, which is where we picked up. After the recap, the heroes reason that the only thing they have to prove that Superman is trapped on this Earth is the word of Mrs. Pitalik. Which, let's be honest, not a very reliable word, you know? So they decide to make an attempt at getting Superman home. But first, Cap and Superman stop by a newsstand where Mary Batson and Uncle Dudley are visiting Freddie Freeman. We met Mary in the last crossover, but Freddie's a disabled boy that Captain Marvel saved and gave some of his power, so when Freddie calls out the name Captain Marvel, he becomes Captain Marvel Jr. Dudley is a bit more wacky. He doesn't have any powers, but he does change clothes to become Uncle Marvel, and the family humors him. They humor him, folks. As much as I want to laugh at that, he's actually come to the rescue many times, as Captain Marvel points out. But Cap is stopping by to let his family know, hey, I'm taking a trip to the other Earth, please be on guard. And after the Marvel family calls down their lightning and thunder and they suit up, Cap and Superman make a run at circling the Rock of Eternity. But as he's about to cross over, Superman slams right into the invisible barrier that makes his belief put up. So he was telling the truth this time. Deciding that maybe the wizard Shazam can let them in on a solution, the heroes enter the rock and find the spirit of the old wizard sleeping. That is when the villains reveal themselves. We knew about Mr. Mr. Mrs. Pitalik and Mr. Mime, but they brought a friend, King Cole. I know, big shocker, since he was, you know, right there on the cover, but he proceeds to deflect every attack effortlessly. Unamused, Mrs. Pitalik banishes the two heroes off to another dimension, which displaces two individuals from that dimension and ticks Cole off. Cole, being strong and savage, wants to smash and kill, which isn't what Mrs. Pitalik had in mind, but Mr. Mind actually did. And this allows the caterpillar to chew the scenery for a moment. Actually, what he does is he shares his origin as a super genius on a planet of worms and grubs. He develops special glasses and a voice box to broadcast a signal across the galaxy. With that signal, he gathered the villains Dr. Savannah, Captain Nazi, and more, and created the Monster Society of Evil, which almost defeated Captain Marvel and took over the world. But since Mr. Mind can't have the world, he's okay with letting Cole destroy it. Mixus Pitalik, however, is cool with that. that. He's not down with the destroying of the world. Not what he signed up for. He may be a prankster, but he's not out to destroy the world. And he threatens to take his magic back, which would mean the antenna on top of the Rock of Eternity would stop sending the equal strength of Superman, Captain Marvel, the Marvel family to Cole. See what they did there? Every time one of the Marvel family or Superman calls down the lightning, they are feeding their strength, their full strength, into Cole, which is accruing 
making him stronger and stronger and more powerful. Also, Mixus Pitalik is responsible for the wizard's current nap, but Mr. Mind calls Mixus Pitalik's bluff, because to remove that spell means that the imp would say his name backwards and return to his own dimension. And he's not going to do that. So Mr. Mind and Cole take off to raise some cane on Earth, well, separate Earths, and they leave Mr. Mixus Pitalik to reconsider his options. Meanwhile, we catch up with Superman and Captain Marvel as they are plopped into another dimension, before they even have a chance to get their bearings, they hear cries for help, and when they respond, they find that they are in a world full of anthropomorphic bunnies. Uh-huh. I'm not joking. On top of that, the meadow is being attacked by a giant robot bunny. I can't write this stuff. As Superman is going up against the robo-bunny, Mr. Mind pops out, revealing himself to be the pilot behind the controls of that robot bunny, and we cut to New York, where Cole bashes his way right into the UN, where he runs into opposition from Captain Marvel and Mary Marvel Jr. and Uncle Marvel. Well, I mean, by opposition, I mean he owns them and quickly takes them out of the fight. However, in a nearby New York street, the two individuals that were displaced when Mixus Pitalik sent Superman to another dimension pop up. And they are two talking anthropomorphic rabbits named Hoppy and Millie. The rabbits are immediately arrested because they appeared in the middle of the street. And when Millie faints, Hoppy calls out, Shazam! And because he is basically the Captain Marvel of his dimension... A lightning bolt comes and transforms him into Marvel Bunny, a walking rabbit version of the Marvel family. No, I, once again, how many times can I say this? I'm not making this up. What happens here at the climax happens so fast and is in so many places, it's almost like Phantom Menace, except good. So I'm going to make it pretty straightforward because there are a lot of things happening. Marvel Bunny busts in on the UN, but before he can take on Cole, Uncle Marvel stops him to try to make a plan, delaying him for one moment. Superman, in his weakened state from the power transfer to Cole, is about to be crushed by Robo-Bunny. Seeing this, Mixus Pitalik puts his foot down because he was not signing up for this. So he bites the bullet, says his name backwards, returning to the t fifth dimension, waking the wizard up, removing the power-sucking magic from King Cole. This allows Superman and Captain Marvel to smash the Robo-Bunny, and Marvel-Bunny's leap at Cole actually has an effect. Since the cocky villain assumes the bunny won't hurt him and is not aware the power is gone, and Cole gets knocked the F out. And the day is saved. Captain Marvel takes Mr. Mind as Hoppy heads back to his dimension, so does Superman. And back at the Daily Planet, Jimmy Olsen catches Clark reading some comics featuring Hoppy the Marvel Bunny and busts Clark's chops. Jimmy calls funny animal books unrealistic, and with a wink to the reader, Clark simply says that they seemed awfully real to him. And so wraps the crossover, and so begins my notes. Beginning with page one, which is a great splash of the two heroes, but an awkward transition, as they're just suddenly back in their own clothes with very little explanation as to why. All we're told is they called down the lightning and poof, we're back to normal. Okay, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, jumping to page three, we have Superman accidentally peeking at a woman getting out of the shower. What is this, Superman Returns? And actually, I kind of chuckle here because the idea of Superman accidentally catching a glimpse of that, um, well, I wish we'd seen him blush a bit. You know, oh my. Uh, the recap on pages four and five is thankfully quick and doesn't get in the way at all. Using the idea of telling the story from Captain Marvel's point of view, really good touch. Really good. Remember, this was a time when you could pick up random comics and jump right on board without buying eight tie-ins and six years of back issues just to comprehend what is happening. Not that I'm bitter. Uh, jumping to page six, there are a pair of pilots who see Superman and Captain Marvel flying by, and one turns to the other to tell them, you know, pretend you didn't see anything if you want to keep your job. They live in a world where the Marvel family lives. They're, that's a real thing in their world. Why are they so surprised when there are flying people around? And we move to page 7. Um, I'm amused that apparently the entire Marvel family just hangs out at Freddy's newsstand. 
Yeah, I get it. Freddy has to work there. That's where he works. But but don't Mary and Uncle Dudley have, you know, better things to do? And I also dig that Dudley says that he has Shazambango, which is a made-up equivalent to Lumbago. And a nice out when he's in a situation where he has to use the powers that he doesn't actually have. As for the costumes of the Marvels, I also like Marion Juniors, but I have to say that Junior stands out a lot, primarily because of the contrast in his blue-colored costume and the other costumes, which are red. Still, we get a miscolored version of Captain Marvel Jr.'s costume as he transforms, so it appears red for a single panel. And jumping to page 9, I laughed out loud when I realized that for all these hours and odd things, it finally occurs to Captain Marvel and Superman to consult the wizard. This late in the game, and this is when it seems like a good idea to consult a magic wizard on strange magical things going on in the neighborhood. Good job. Speaking of things in the not-so-bright category, Superman charges at Cole on page 10, right after Cole says that his strength is magic-based. Um... You know, Superman, he just said his magic, his power is augmented by magic. Um, why, why are you surprised here? Where, where's the shocker? Uh, page 12. Wow. <laughs> um, Mr. Mind talks about coming from a, pla a planet of slugs and aardvarks. Um, basically recounts the entire 24-part series Monster Society of Evil, which was the first really massive ongoing storyline in Captain Marvel history in which Mr. Mind was the main villain. Um, it would be kind of an equivalent to today's, you know, big event stuff, but on a more reasonable scale. It was just the first serialized story, because most of those Golden Age stories were standalone. Um, and let me just say on page 12 once again, when Mixus Pitalik is the voice of reason, something is wrong with your plan. Um, page 13, looking at the panel here um, where he, Mr. Mind is flying away, what kind of narcissistic worm Drives a ship with his own face on it. Wow. Uh, page 14, the art here, showing Mixius Pitalik really thinking through what he's doing, uh, different expressions. The, the the sort of thought process we see playing out here visually is really well displayed. I really like this panel. Page 15, bunnies! We got bunnies and a giant robo-bunny! How can you not get into that? It's goofy, it's wacky, and it's lovable. I mean, sorry. It is, it is. Uh, page 16, I want to note... Uh, that Superman notes that when he hits something, the hit sound effect apparently comes true. The onomatopoeia becomes true. Which is, for some reason, a flashback for me to the Super Friends episode where they were placed in Oz. Uh, page 17, as the text points out, yes, it's true. Captain Marvel Jr. can't say his own name. What kind of sad world is it where a kid can't say his own name? Page 18. Yes, clearly, Mary and Captain Marvel Jr. were here to be slapped around because they served no story purpose at all whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they're filling up space. They show the transformation, they show up, they're taken out of the fight almost immediately, and then they say something trite at the end. I should, I guess technically those are the three things they're there for, but I don't think that serves a valid purpose. Uh, page 19, Hoppy and Millie show up on the streets of New York. Two anthropomorphic bunnies just hitting the town. You would think... Grant Morrison was writing this. You know, this is not something that would be out of place in his some of his stories. Especially the New 52. Kind of disappointed we didn't see that in Action Comics. Um, Hoppy here is depicted as somewhat pinkish in his fur, which most of his older stories will depict him as having brown fur. Um, so, he's a brown bunny. Uh, pages 22 through 24 to wrap us up. This was a huge climax. It almost became too much to follow. As I mentioned, I made the Phantom Menace reference. Um, 
well, I mean, honestly, we get all this stuff happening. We got Superman over here. The mutt bunny's jumping at him. You know, Mrs. Piddlick's making his choice. All at once, it uh, suddenly, then, abruptly ends. So that became a little bit of a frustration. Uh, it's, I mean, overall, it's still a satisfying, fun read. We're not looking at something that's an earth-shattering crossover. It's not universe-changing. It's just simple, fun comics. And there's never anything wrong with that. It doesn't have to be the most structurally sound piece of storytelling. It doesn't have to be earth-shaking. It doesn't have to change the character. It doesn't have to change the status quo every ten minutes. It just sometimes needs to be a good, fun read that I can sit down, or you can sit down, or we can sit down, <laughs> that we can spend ten minutes reading a comic, enjoying ourselves, and then, you know, put it down and move on with our day. There's not anything wrong with that. It's kind of like popcorn movies. You know, it may not be the best movie ever made, it may not have a lot of artistic merit, but you know what, I paid five bucks, I went in, I watched my movie, I was entertained for two hours, I laughed, I left. I like the uh, really good villain choices. Um, they didn't go back to, you know, sort of the old standbys, that were, you know, like Savannah, or Black Adam. We went with Mr. Mind, which was a very inspired choice for this particular story, we went with King Cole which was an interesting choice, but he didn't play necessarily an integral part, but he was good for some muscle, so interesting there. And of course, Mixus Pitalik, I can never be mad at Mixus Pitalik showing up. So we had some good villain choices, some fun uh, uh, aspects, you know, things like Hoppy showing up. Who would have seen that coming, really? You know, we didn't use the wizard as a deus ex machina. As much as I joked about them finally going to consult the wizard, for once, you know, that was one of the big potential weaknesses in Captain Marvel stories, or Marvel family stories. Um, you see these characters in their backs against the wall, they're into the corner. Well, let's go ask the wizard and he would give them either the direction or, you know, he would kind of intervene. And with this one, he was taken out of the equation. So instead we got a, you know, we had a unique character moment in that fact that Hoppy the Marvel Bunny got to stand up and shine and be the guy that clocks, <laughs> the guy that clocks uh, Cole in the face. Really well done, really well done. I just, I think there was a lot of superfluous characters in the second part. Uh, that may, you know, we had Mary and Captain Marvel Jr. that were put on a back burner that did nothing but get beaten up. That was a little disappointing. Um, the villains were kind of all over the place, even though they were good choices. You know, still, you, you have Mr. Mind over here in a robo-bunny suit, Mr. Cole, King Cole, I mean, not Mr. Cole, King Cole, smashing up the UN. And Mixus Pitalik sort of being all emo and questioning his motives and whatnot. It was just, uh, second part kind of definitely came apart a little bit more. However, it still comes back to, I had fun reading it. So I cannot be mad at it. But that is the second crossover, and I will probably be coming back to cover the other crossovers in this book later in the year. For now, though, we have an episode of Superman the Animated Series to cover. And this is awkward. Um, everything was in the can. Everything was ready to go up till this point with Superman the Animated Series. And when I popped in my DVD to do my review of Ghost in the Machine, the DVD does not want to work. So here I am awkwardly telling you that I do not have an episode of Superman the Animated Series for this week. 
and hoping you'll accept my humble apologies. I will make it right. I'll figure out what's wrong with the DVD or move to another location. But due to time crunch, I'm not able to get the DVD to work at this point, which is really, really frustrating. So maybe I'll have to get another copy or get it off of iTunes, something along those lines. Uh, next week, I'll be debuting a new episode on Monday with Charlie Niemeyer, who was kind enough to pop by to talk about the holiday of Miracle Monday, which is an appropriate date. Uh, so once again, I really do apologize for the snafu with the DVD. A little frustrating, more than a little. Uh, but I will be back next week. I'll make it right. I'll stick it at the end of next week or something like that. And we'll get back on track of Superman the Animated Series. Until then, I am J. David Weeder saying keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman Forever Radio is a NatWorld production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at SuperDaveWeeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.